Who does he think he is? The Jewish leaders demanded. He has broken the Sabbath law. Furthermore, he has taught someone else to break the Sabbath law by taking up his cot and walking on the Sabbath. Jesus Christ had just healed a man. The Jewish leaders understood that to be breaking the Sabbath law. The Old Testament says that on the Sabbath day you shall not do any work, but only rest. The rabbis discussed the meaning of that, and they came to the conclusion that a doctor can help a person keep from getting worse on the Sabbath, but he cannot help him get better. To do something that would help him get better would be work which would be a violation of the Sabbath law. Jesus had now broken the law. Furthermore, he had told this man to take up his cot and carry it home. That would be involving yourself in transportation, house moving, which would be also a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ did not fit into their system. He did not fit into their preconceived ideas. He was a religious teacher. He went about proclaiming the kingdom of God. And here he had broken the law that he was supposed to uphold. At least that was their interpretation. Today, Jesus Christ still does not fit into the religious system of many people. But by an odd twist... Today, those people who reject him often still honor him with their lips. The part of the world that we live in, the most predominant religion in the region is Islam. In Islam, Jesus is honored as a prophet, a high prophet. And when his name is pronounced Issa, it is always pronounced with a blessing attached to it. But in spite of those words of honor, he is rejected for who he really is, the divine Son of God. When missionaries go to India, they have difficulties because if they preach the gospel and say, who would like to accept Jesus Christ now? Everyone raises their hand. And they, in quotes, accept Christ. They go home and buy a poster of Jesus and put it up next to their posters of Ganesha, the elephant head god, and of Siva, the destroyer, and of Krishna, the blue-skinned hero of the Bhagavad Gita. In America, different cult groups give honor to Jesus Christ and yet reject who he really is. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, say that he's the highest created being. He is Michael the archangel. But they reject who he claimed to be. Humanists often say that Jesus is a great moral teacher and they exalt him at the same time rejecting the major part of his teaching, the teaching which concerns himself. Now there may be some of you here today who are in the same boat. Maybe you have come from a Christian tradition and you honor Jesus in some vague sort of way whenever you speak of him, you speak of him well, unless you're cursing. And you honor him as some great teacher, some prophet, some divine son in some way. The question that they asked is a question we must ask. Who does he think 
he is. Turn with me to John chapter 5, and we see in this chapter a healing that Jesus did on the Sabbath day, which led to controversy. And in response to the controversy, Jesus spelled out very clearly who he thought he was and why he could heal on the Sabbath day. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Most of our modern versions leave out verse 4. It's not in our most ancient Greek text. Apparently it was added by a scribe to explain how this tradition of coming to this pool came about. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? That seems like a strange question. The man had been an invalid for 38 years. Wouldn't he want to get well? Yet the question is really not so strange. To get well would mean a radical change in his life. He had apparently been able to support himself for these 38 years as a beggar, as most cripples did. He must be in his 50s or 60s by now. What would this man do at this age without any experience in work all these almost four decades To be healed would mean a radical change in his life, and it might jeopardize his means of earning a living. The same question often has to be asked today to people who are in need. Those who counsel alcoholics, drug addicts, homosexuals, and others trapped in some kind of enslaving sin have to ask the same question. Do you want to be healed? Because people often come to counseling asking for help, but really all they want is sympathy. It may be that you are one of those who are trapped in some kind of difficulty. Now, there's some who are trapped in difficulty who want out and they have a a hard time getting out, but there are others who have grown comfortable in their neurosis and don't want out. It's too scary. And Jesus' word to you may be the same this morning. Do you want to be healed? Well, this man did. He replied, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. The tradition was that the first one into the pool after the angel of the Lord came and stirred up the water would be healed. This man, being crippled, could never get down into the water. Someone would always beat him to it. Then Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now notice that this man was not healed in response to his faith. He expressed a desire to be healed, but he didn't didn't exercise faith in Jesus Christ. This is made more clear in verse 13 where we will read that he didn't even know who Jesus was. Now, I'm pointing this out because some people today claim that healing is a universal privilege of 
of the Christian. If you just believe, you can be healed of anything. And if you're not healed, it's because you didn't believe enough. Here we see that there were many who were crippled, lame and blind and, and in other words, other ways ill, who were at this pool, Bethesda. Jesus chose one man among the multitude to heal. And in this instance, he did so apart even from this man's faith. He chose to heal, and he still exercises divine prerogatives. It's never a right that we have. The story continues. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He indicates that this man's affliction came as a result of his sin. When we stray from God, at times we come under His discipline. And at times God has to hit us over the head with a hammer, as it were, to get our attention so that we can look up to Him. Now we're told in the book of Job that all tragedy that befalls us is not a result of sin. So we don't have to feel guilty trying to look for it if it's not there. But there are times in which God has to go to extreme measures to get our attention. You may remember last week, if you were here, we had a choir from Northwestern College, and one of the choir members was in a wheelchair. He shared his testimony in the Sunday school class, and he said that as a youth, he was wild, he was a rebel, he was running from God. And he ran from God until he ran 80 miles an hour into a tree and became paralyzed. And only then did he realize that he could not control his life. And he looked up to God and found salvation in Christ. If God is doing something strange in your life, you may have to ask that question today. Is he trying to get my attention? Am I running away from something? Is there some message he has for me? And Jesus warns this man that just because you're healed, don't think that's the end issue. Stop sinning. You need to get your life changed and squared up, lest something worse happens. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. His actions did not fit with their ideas as to what should happen on the Sabbath day. According to their understanding, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath by his action of healing this man on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus responds in the verses that follow. He defends himself by explaining who he is. On a previous occasion, recorded in Mark 3, Jesus had the same kind of problem, a controversy over healing done on the Sabbath. And there he defended himself by saying that their interpretation of the law was wrong. Man is made for the... uh, the, 
the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. We shouldn't have such a narrow restriction as to what's appropriate on the Sabbath. But here, Jesus focuses his attention not upon their misinterpretations of law, but upon their misinterpretations of him. Verse 17, he says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. That's a strange sort of thing to say. What does it mean? Well, the meaning is very simple, really. What Jesus is saying is that God is above the Sabbath law. He's not bound by it. He's not restricted by it. Seven days a week, God works. He upholds and maintains the universe. It would all collapse if he rested on the Sabbath. Just as God is above the Sabbath law, so also I am above the Sabbath law, Jesus was saying. Now, this did not go over too well with the Jewish leaders. For this very reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They had no trouble understanding his meaning in verse 17. They understood him to be making two claims. One, that he had a unique relationship with God. He was calling God his own father. God was known as the father of Israel, the nation. But no Jew of that day would call God his own father. No Jew would presume to claim that kind of intimacy. But Jesus called God his own father, thus claiming that he had some kind of unique relationship with him, different from that of ordinary men. Secondly, he claimed that he was equal with God in some way. Now, what did that mean, that he was equal with God? Well, the rabbis used the term making oneself equal to God, sometimes to indicate one who is a rebel, one who is independent, one who says, I don't have to submit to God's laws because I'm on the same plane as God. I'm equal to God. I'm above His demands. A presumptuous and foolish thing for any human to say. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, I'm above the Sabbath law, I don't have to obey it? I'm a rebel, I'm independent? No, that's not his meaning. We see his clarification of the matter in verses 19 and 20. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Jesus says there's no rebellion here. There's no independence. I can't do anything besides what God the Father does. He explains the unity that he has with the Father in terms of a son who's apprenticed to his Father and his craft. He goes to the workshop. He watches his father work. And he copies everything he does, how he hammers a chisel, how he sands the the board, how he planes it. He copies it. And he says, what I see my father doing, I do. There's no rebellion here. There's a complete unity. Well, what does that mean then? Does Jesus mean merely that he's an unusual man who has an extraordinary measure of piety 
so that he's in closer communion with God than other men? These words are similar to those used by many Hindu mystics. I'm in union with God and I meditate and I see what God does and I do what God does. Is that Jesus' meaning? No, he means something much more profound than that. The verses that follow, he clarifies by explaining that he's claiming divine prerogatives. He's in union with God the Father because he is God the Son. He says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Jesus has amazed them by the miracle of healing on the Sabbath. But he says, I'm going to do much more than this. Don't be amazed merely at this. And then he explains further. 21 and 22. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. The Old Testament was very clear that, that these two things were prerogatives of God alone. The authority to give life and the authority to act as judge of all men. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. God is speaking and says, See now that I myself am He. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver from my hand. There is one God. And God alone has the right to give death and life. Now Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased. God is known as the judge of all men. Abraham refers to Him in Genesis 18 as the judge of all the earth. Now Jesus makes this very bold claim that the Father judges no one but he has delivered all judgment into the hands of the Son. Do you realize what he's saying? He says, I'm no ordinary man. I have a union with the Father, but it's because I exercise divine prerogatives. I am the divine Son of God. In the next verse, Jesus tells us why God has given these powers to His Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That's a bold claim. He says, if you do not honor Me, you do not honor God. You may work hard in your religion. Your piety may be profound, your devotion supreme, but if you do not honor me, you do not really honor God. We have a Malay friend in Singapore named Rahima. All Malays are Muslim. She's a devoted Muslim and a a wonderful person. The very name Islam means submission. And Muslims claim to be submitted to Allah, the Supreme One. And because of her submission to Allah, she very faithfully 
praise five times a day. When we had, she was over at our house, we had uh, Thanksgiving service with, uh, uh, in November with some of our friends. She said, oh, you Christians give thanks to God one time a year. We give thanks five times a day. She didn't really understand, but, but she will stop her work. She will go off to a prayer room, put out her prayer uh, rug, get on her knees, and bow before Almighty God in prayer five times a day, which is more than most of us do, I, I would guess. And during the month of Ramadan, which is happening right now, the devout Muslim is not supposed to eat or drink anything from sunrise to sunset. For Rahima, that means getting up at 4.30 every morning to fix a big breakfast for her family so they can eat enough to make it through the day. And then, though she lives in a tropical land, can neither eat nor drink even a drop of water all day long, must work without any refreshment till sundown. Towards the end of Ramadan, she looks tired, pale. But she does this because of her dedication to her religion. Now, we are tempted to be relativistic as our age is and to say, well, she's obviously devout. It doesn't really make any difference about the particulars of your beliefs. Whatever you believe is okay as long as you're sincere. We're tempted to say that. But notice what Jesus Christ claims. He says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He says that in spite of this person's commitment, in spite of the name Islam, she is not submitting herself to God Almighty. Because true submission to God means that we honor the Son whom the Father has sent. You may may be one who says, I don't like organized religion. Maybe a friend brought you here today and because our music is nice, you know, you you like that. We don't have a pulpit and it's different. So so you'll come here uh, a time or two. But you don't really like organized religion. And you think, I'm going to honor God in my own way. I'll worship Him in my way. Jesus Christ says, if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father at all. Now you may have been turned off because of some hypocritical Christian. And there are plenty of us who are hypocritical, narrow-minded, legalistic. And if you want to find somebody to turn you off, it's, it's not a hard problem. But don't let that distract you from the real issue. The real issue is not our Christians perfect. We're not. The real issue is who is Jesus Christ. He claims right here that he is the judge of all mankind and you'll have to face him on the judgment day. He claims that unless you honor him in the same way that you honor God, that you will not have eternal life. It seems strange, but many people will do to God what they won't do to man. You might say, well, I'll honor God in my own way and feel good about it. But I bet you won't go to work tomorrow and say, I'm going to obey my boss in my own way. I don't like, you know, corporate practices and organized business and my boss tells me something to do. I'm going to do it in my own way, not his own way. You try that at work, and you're not going to be there next week. 
And yet some people have the audacity to try that very thing with God and feel good about it. Jesus says, don't honor God in your way. Honor God in God's way. He has sent His Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Verse 24 clarifies for us what honoring the Son means. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He says that honoring him means receiving his word, hearing my word and believing him who sent me. To hear his word is a Hebrew idiom. It does not mean just listen to him. But hear and receive to accept his teachings. Not just his teachings to love your neighbors yourself, though that's part, but also the teachings such as we studied a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're born again, he says, by putting your trust in him, in Jesus Christ, as the one who bears our sins upon the cross. To honor him means to hear this message and receive it. And to believe in God as the one who sent Jesus Christ into the world. Now what happens if you believe it? What are the results of accepting this message and so honoring the Son? Well, Jesus describes these results in two ways in this verse. He who believes has eternal life. Notice he doesn't say he will have eternal life. He has eternal life. It's a present possession. It's something that that a person who has believed in Christ has right now. Eternal life means living eternally. Going past this life and living forever with God in a heavenly existence. But it doesn't start at death. It starts right now. As we experience this different quality of life. Life not just live with the boredom and the frustration of self-centeredness that we're used to. But life that, that has a quality of beauty attached to it. Because God is in our life. Jesus describes this in a second way by saying, He will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. Here he uses a past tense. He says that you will not be condemned because you have crossed over from death to life. In other words, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the judgment day happens for you right then. And when judgment day comes in the future, you can say, I've already been there. In other words, you have the assurance that you will not come into condemnation. As a Christian, you do not have to live in fear that someday I'm going to blow it. I'm going to do something horrible and lose my whole salvation. God will get frustrated with me and mad and say, no more. We don't have to worry about that. The judgment day has come and gone. We have passed out of death into life. We have that as a present possession. And we saw in verses 21 and 22 that Jesus claims these two divine prerogatives of giving life and of being the judge of all men. In verses 25 to 29, he joins these two prerogatives 
together. He says they're related. And he is the judge of all men who gives life. And this life he gives is present and its future. First of all, he describes it as something present. I tell you the truth, a time is coming, it's future, and now has come, it's present, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's not talking about the physically dead, that now people start being resurrected. He's talking about the spiritually dead. Because everybody who's separated from God, even though they may be religious people and come to church or do penance or, or fast during Ramadan, if they do not know Jesus Christ, they are spiritually dead. But the hour has now come, Jesus says, when those who are spiritually dead will hear my voice and receive life. Those who hear will live. He says, I'm able to do this, for as the Father has life in himself, he is self-existent, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The Son is not dependent upon the Father for his existence. He is eternal God. He is self-existent and has the authority to judge mankind. So we see that the judgment is present. We receive eternal life right now as we believe in him. The judgment is also future, 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There is spiritual resurrection now. There is physical resurrection in the future. Jesus Christ will stand as the judge of all men, He will cause all to rise from the dead. Those who have done good will go to life. Those who have done evil will go to condemnation. You might say, well, I've done a lot of good things. I'll probably go to life. If you take the whole teaching of, of Scripture, we see that those who do good includes the goodness of accepting God's message. The Jews asked Jesus, John 6, what must we be doing to be doing the work of God? He says, believe on him whom he has sent. Those who do good are only those whose good works include the work of accepting God's message of salvation, God's way of salvation. And those who do evil, though, though they may do many things that are good in man's eyes and things which are good in themselves, you may give to charity, you may lead charity marches and, and do good things for your neighbors, And yet, if underneath all of that is a rejection of God and a rejection of His way of salvation, and all your goodness is tainted with that evil, and Jesus says you will be resurrected to judgment, to condemnation. Now, the point of all of this is that this question about who Jesus is is a question of eternal significance. We began with the question of the Jewish leaders. Just who does he think he is? And we've seen the answer. Jesus claims to be God who has become man. He claims to be the one who can give life. The one who will stand in judgment day and before whom everyone will have to give account. 
Now the question has come full circle around to you. Who do you think he is? Don't just say, oh, he's a good man, he's a good teacher, he's a a prophet. Don't just think that in some way you can vaguely honor him by going to church. You have to make this decision of who Jesus Christ is. You have to come to the place of honoring Him as the divine Son of God who became man to bear your sin on the cross that you might have life. This is an issue of eternal consequences. If Jesus is who He claimed to be, then you will stand before Him in the judgment day and you cannot say, well, I didn't really know this was so important to make this decision. Your time will be up. Now those of us who have already made that decision have to help other people to make that decision. Because we see here that we are dealing with life and death issues. We are entrusted with this message that we might take it to other people. Now I find personally evangelism often awkward. I often don't know Am I supposed to be more bold and go up and speak to this person? Or do I need the sensitivity to hold back and this is not the right time and I'll scare him away with my brashness if I go speak? What am I supposed to do? And I feel often awkward. And several times I've done the wrong thing. I've kept quiet when I should have spoken. I've spoken when I should have kept quiet. So why bother? Why put up with all these awkward feelings? Why don't we just hire a minister of evangelism for the church and then we don't have to do anything? Why put up with these awkward feelings? Why extend ourselves? Because, my friends, we're dealing with life and death issues. That person's destiny eternally is dependent upon his response to Jesus Christ. If we have been given the truth and received it and know it, we have a responsibility to share it with other people. To share it here and to share it in faraway lands. But to share it in faraway lands is also a difficult task. It's costly in terms of money. It costs more to have me in Singapore than it does to have me ministering here in Boise. It's costly in terms of personnel. It's costly in terms of suffering, struggle. When William Carey went to India as a missionary in 1793... He worked for seven long years under difficult circumstances before he had one convert. His friends back home wondered, is this really the right thing to do, to spend all this money to have him over there? He could make more converts back here in England. And during that time, two of his colleagues died of malarial fever before they'd even learned one of the local languages, before they'd done anything useful. And we wonder, why this waste? Why invest so much in this kind of thing? We sent Dan and Monica Brown to a Middle Eastern country. They served there for less than two years and got kicked out. Their team was arrested. They would have been arrested if they'd been there. Why bother with that? We want to pay the price because we are dealing with eternal issues. We're dealing with matters of life and death. Where I work in Singapore, we see many people, 
hundreds of thousands of them who worship ancestors and hope that their worship of ancestors will help them get to the next life. They worship idols of Buddha and Kuan Yin, the goddess of mercy, and other idols. But we know that those idols cannot give life. We know that those idols can do nothing to take away the guilt of sin. And they will stand condemned before Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. We want to pay a price to take the gospel to people like this because it's a matter of life and death. Jesus says, those who do not honor the Son do not honor the Father. So if you have never made that decision yourself this morning, this is a crucial time for you. You never know how long you have. Jesus confronts you with these words with which he confronted the Jewish leaders of his day. You may say, well, that doesn't fit into my system. It's a question of what is true. If he is who he says he is, you are going to have to face him in the judgment day. You're going to have to try to explain, well, I have an excuse. There was this hypocritical Christian or I had, you know, work to do and there was a basketball game on and I didn't have time to think about this thing. You have a decision to make. Those of us who are already Christians have a responsibility to take this message to our neighbors, to our friends, our family. To send representatives abroad to take this message of salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ to spirit worshipers in Papua New Guinea and Suriname, Muslims in the Middle East, to Hindus in India, to idol worshipers in Singapore. Because in the judgment day, all mankind will have to stand before Jesus Christ as their judge. Those who have honored him will have honored God the Father in truth. Those who have rejected him, in spite of their religious activities and beliefs, will have rejected the God who sent him. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you want us to know the truth and so have sent your message to us. Your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our soul. We pray that we might understand and receive. For those who do not know you yet here, we pray that this might be a time of decision for them today. For those of us who know you, we may be renewed in our commitment to take this message to other people. Open doors of opportunity for us, we pray. We desire to honor you through honoring your Son. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.